0: All right, let's read the passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is in the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you, not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. Lord, may you lead us this morning as we unpack your words together, guide our hearts and our minds in the way that only you can do, that you would turn the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, take darkened eyes with scales, Remove the scales and bring light. And may you do all these things for your glory. Amen. Truth is probably the rarest of all things today. Uh, I would say that truth actually is the rarest of all things in all of history, for we can even go back to the time when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, and what did Pontius Pilate ask Jesus, what is truth? Truth is rare. Truth is hard to come by. And everybody who is speaking is always telling us that they know the truth. That they're right. It's a precious thing to know and to have the truth. To know it. To speak it. To be able to discern it. Now there's the key. To be able to discern it when you have the truth being told to you. Or when it's not being told to you? How is it that there can be so many different messages and yet every single one claims to be the truth? And yet they contradict. I wrote a a statement here. and I, I need to think through it a little bit more, but I think it's true in the sense that to be human is to be skeptic. To be human is to be skeptic, but on the flip side of the same coin, to be human is to be deceived. To be human is to be skeptic, but on the same side, of, or the, the flip the coin over, to be human is to be deceived. In, in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians, as we've been walking through those two chapters since, since January, the Apostle has made some pretty audacious claims about truth to the church. He has made some great arguments to the church about who God is, who Christ is. Some very exclusive claims. But what we've come to see in these last couple weeks, the hardest truth for the people in Ephesus, for the church in Ephesus, to more or less Uh, comprehend is the truth of the Jews and the Gentiles coming together the mystery of the gospel the mystery of the gospel the reconciliation and all those things the things that seem to be the most difficult to believe to us where we struggled through election and predestination and adoption where those are the things that are hard for us to comprehend the one that was most difficult probably for them, for Jews and Gentiles, was the mystery of the gospel of these two cultures coming together. Because if what he is saying in the latter parts of chapter 2 are correct, there is some reorienting that takes place in their lives and in this church. The outcome has to reorient their lives. Totally change their perspective Their perspective on what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be a Gentile. Is what he's saying really true? So can the, so this is coming through their minds, is that can the Gentile bank on everything that Paul is telling them? Is it true? Is it really that good that now the Gentiles have been brought into the kingdom of God? Can be. Something completely unheard of mystery, never even in the minds of the Gentiles, and now they have been brought into to be a part of the kingdom of God and to be part of the household of God. Can the Jew really forego the rites and rituals that they've always known? They've known nothing else. Can you really let those things go? And can the work of Christ really mean that they can actually fellowship with Gentiles? People who are dirty? Are they now my brother and sister? These are the questions. These are the the questions that that come to mind. And in our passage this morning, here in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to pray. He says, For this reason... And then he pauses, right? Our, our, our translators for us, our editors put in a comma for us, and the commas are there to help readers, okay? And it helps us to see a pause here. And there's a pause here because what he does is he kind of stops his prayer, and he says, let me back up. Let me back up and let me talk to you just a little bit more about where all this is coming from and how I know all this. And he continues later in 14 through 21, the prayer, the intercessory prayer for, for them. So he pauses for a moment in a very pastoral way for a people that he knew. He spent three years in Ephesus. He, spent no, he didn't spend longer than uh, anywhere else. He never spent that much time. He knew these people. He knew these people really well. And he pauses very much pastorally and a love for them so that they would not be discouraged over such questions and such temptations to, to fear, temptations to turn back either to Judaism or turn back into pagan sin. So he lovingly lays out for them, here's, here's hint, hint, answer to question number one, he lays out for them the authentication for his teaching. He lays out for them, this is what authenticates what I'm telling you. This is how you know that this is true. And what he lays out for the people is he lays out and offers his life. Here is the authenticity of the message that I preach to you and give to you in this letter. Because look at my life. You know me. You know me. So, I I love what's happening here. I love what's happening and, and taking place in the text because right here, the original readers who are going to see this intercessory prayer that Paul makes on their behalf, they see him offering his life as this authentication of this teaching and they believe and see that this is the Apostle of God. And not only that, but he is... Our Apostle. He came to us. And He undergoes tribulation and suffering and imprisonment on our behalf. And so He tells us in verse 13, do not lose heart. Do not be discouraged. But press in. Lean in. More and more than you ever have. I love that. I love how that speaks to even us. An authentication for our own faith in what we believe and what we see in the text. So we're going to walk through these passages this morning. And we're going to unpack the evidences of Paul's life that authenticates his message for us. So that we can believe as well that it is true, that it is good, and that it is satisfying. So the first one, first point I want to show us is that he trusted Christ in suffering trusted in Christ to suffer. For this reason, I, Paul, he pauses, right? That's the great pause. Paul, a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul was a minister, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you. But Paul was a minister, a, a servant to the Gentiles. That was his ministry he was called to take the gospel to the nations to those who were not supposed to hear the gospel he brought the gospel to them god's plan he's not speaking metaphorically to us this morning about being a prisoner he was literally historically a prisoner in rome waiting to see the caesar He was a prisoner in Rome, literally in chains. Arrested in Jerusalem, falsely accused by the Jews that he brought a Gentile into the temple. Remember what we talked about that? Falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the the temple, but the real anger against Paul was not this false accusation, but that Paul was preaching in inclusion to the Gentiles. That was their anger toward him, that he was preaching an inclusion to the Gentiles and to the family of God, that they too are the real citizens of the kingdom of God and part of the household of God and part of the family of God and that they are of Abraham, grafted in greater than those who have the bloodline. That was the big problem. But yet Paul did not consider his imprisonment an imprisonment of the Jews. Or he didn't call it an imprisonment of Rome, but he said that I am a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And the reason why he says it this way is because Paul knew who he served. Paul knew who he served. Paul knew who loved him. Paul knew who died for him and who called him. And wherever he went, And whatever happened to him was regardless of the fact and shaking the earth, the the foundation of the fact that Christ was sovereignly in control of his life. Regardless. Whether I am beaten, whether I am imprisoned unjustly, whether I am scorned, whether I am chased out of towns, shipwrecked, bit by a snake, whatever it is, Christ Is in control. And this perspective of Christ, regardless of his circumstances, is is one that understands not only the sufficiency of Christ, but the sovereignty of God in all things. You see, if Paul if if all Paul could see was his circumstances, I think he would have thrown in the towel a lot earlier. If all he could see was his false imprisonment and poor me, why are they doing this to me? I'm just trying to serve you, God. Aren't I doing my best? Why is these bad things happening to me? No. He had a bigger perspective. A perspective that was not temporal. A perspective that was not earthly. But a perspective that was biblical. A perspective that was glorious. And a perspective that was eternal. An eternal perspective that drove Paul in his faithfulness. Not even blaming others for his circumstance. He had a big perspective. He suffered for the glory of his Savior. And in that suffering, there was a mark of that authenticity. Mark of suffering shows authenticity. It's not in prosperity, but it's in suffering. It is is where we will even look more like Christ. It's when Paul began to bear the marks of Christ, when he began to look more and more like Christ. That's why he could say, look at my life, church in Ephesus. Look at me. Not in pride, but in humility. Look at me. Look at the mark of authenticity. It's not in prosperity. It's not in health and wealth and blessing, but it's in suffering. When we look like our Savior. That's why we have words from James chapter 1 that says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That's why you can go on to say that you can know, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And in its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking. In nothing. Paul wasn't imprisoned for himself. But he was imprisoned for the sake of the Gentiles. For our sake. For their sake. Suffering for the sake of others. Listen to me. Suffering for the sake of others is the picture of the gospel. Think about it. It's the picture of the gospel. It is where, it's where Christ suffered on behalf of others bringing redemption, bringing reconciliation before God. And Paul is saying, I'm not Christ. My suffering doesn't save you, but God has used my suffering as an avenue in which now the Gentiles are hearing the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us not waste our suffering. That is a bold statement to say. God uses it. Gloriously, for not only your good, but for the good of others to hear the gospel, to hear how you speak of Christ in your greatest times of need. Let's not look at our suffering for ourselves, but for the sake of others. The mark of authenticity, suffering. second one is this. We see an understanding of the gospel, of how how the mystery of Christ was revealed. And this is coming from verses 2 through 6. You can look through it. I'm not going to read it again. But you can see here what, what these verses are talking about is that now Paul has this responsibility to speak and communicate the message of Christ to the nations. He says, I have have this given, this this stewardship, this responsibility, this task, this call to bring the gospel to the nations. This message of the, the mystery of Christ to the nations. And in hopes for the church, Ephesus and beyond, to understand the mystery of Christ. The message that Paul had was for the church. And he was a steward of that message. The mystery of the gospel we see according to verse 3, that this mystery was made known by revelation. That this mystery was made known by revelation. And what we see here, and what that means, is that it was revealed to him by Christ. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. You can go back and reference this later, but he says... To, to the Galatians in defense of his ministry and the gospel that he speaks to them. He says, For I would have you know, brother, that the gospel that I was preached, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Meaning this. The gospel that he preached was not a gospel that he made up. It wasn't a gospel that he even received from other people. He received it from Christ himself. Received it from Jesus himself. The authentication of this mystery that was revealed to him. Revealed to him. Made known to me by revelation. Verse 3. He says, verse 4, he says, so that you may understand and you may be able to perceive my insight. I think it's pretty clear. I mean, has, has anybody ever wrote so clearly, so graciously, and so precisely the gospel message like Paul? And so detailed, go, go to Romans and unpack Romans and see the, how not only the genius of Paul but the revealed nature by which he has received the gospel message. Perceive his insight and marvel at what Christ has done in revealing that message to him. Verse 5, that mystery was, was once unknown to former generations, unknown. But now, verse 6, the mystery is what? That the Gentiles are now fellow heirs. And that is the gospel message, the promise that in Christ Jesus, that the Gentiles would be brought in. The good news that the helpless, those who once were far off, are now brought near. Those who once were strangers and aliens are no more. But they are citizens and they are family members brought into the household of God. The good news that the helpless, the hopeless, the spiritually dead people could now be reconciled to God. And be reconciled to each other. Saved from an eternal wrath and judgment due to sinners. In a work that it can only be done by Christ. Not by their willingness to join, but by Christ. By His atoning work on the cross. By grace. By grace, we we are saved through faith and repentance, and we are made alive. All these great things we unpacked in chapters 1 and 2 made alive together with Christ, adopted as sons, that this is the gospel message. The gospel message is so amazing because it is as simple as a, it's a simple message that a child can understand and perceive and believe. And for an adult who's never heard the gospel, but it it is also as deep and as complex that we can never explore its depths. We may understand the depths of the oceans one day, but we will never understand understand the depths of the gospel. A message that perplexes even the angels. Never did Paul stray from his task, from delivering this message of revelation of the mystery of Christ to the Jews and Gentiles. He made it known. He was precise in making it, No, and why? Because he believed it. He believed it. So the gospel that, that we preach, the gospel that we teach and believe and cherish, this same gospel is the gospel that we understand, that we are to continue to understand in, and continue to know and grow in, but it is also the gospel message that we have been given to proclaim to the world as well. That we have been proclaimed. Paul is the revealer, and we are the re-revealers. We continue to reveal it over and over to ourselves and to others. To ourselves and to others. This authenticates Paul, authenticates his message, his life. He lived the gospel revealed to him by Christ. The third thing is that he is always overwhelmed by grace. He's always overwhelmed by grace. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, of this gospel, right, from verse 6, of this gospel I was made a minister, right, a servant. A minister according to what? To the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, here it is, once again, that that revealing of God, which was given to me by the working of His power, by God's power. To me, verse 8, to me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given. This is a theme of Ephesians. is because it is the theme of Paul's life. And it's not just the theme of, of, of Paul's life as if he's some special super-Christian, but if you are a Christian indeed, then that is the theme of your life. It's grace. To be overwhelmed and perplexed by God's grace. Like given a gift that you cannot understand why. Such an amazing gift. You see, Paul knew, Paul could remember, I think he was haunted in so many ways of his former life. That he was a blasphemer, a murderer, a hater, a persecutor of Christians, and therefore a a persecutor or hater, and a blasphemer of Jesus himself. And I think he was haunted in the sense that it reminded him of grace. That it reminded him of grace. That every thought of who he once was, was now a pointer toward the amazing grace of God. That was given to him in Christ. And then to be used to be such a spokesman, an ambassador in chains for the gospel to the Gentiles. Amazing. Amazing. See how grace here humbled him. See how God's grace humbled him. Look at verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. It's not that he's it's not that he's being falsely humble or he's showing kind of some kind of false pride to make us think, "Oh, he is that great of a guy." but that he really believes that he is least of all the saints. This isn't some false humility, some self-pity, but that God has freely this, um, put on him and given him in such a gift this undeserving grace. And it doesn't leave him puffed up. It doesn't leave him feeling like God owes him, even in his imprisonment. He doesn't look and say, okay, God, where are you now? You owe me here because I did these things but he constantly sees the privilege to serve the king. Grace. He knew that everything that he was able to do and continues to do, preach, teach, plant churches, suffer, be in prison, all of it is done by God's grace. Not only does God's grace humble him, but it also humbles us, but we also see that, that God's grace empowered him. That it is God's grace that that empowered him. And so as it empowers him, it also empowers us. Look back at verse 7. He says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. And what did it do? It drove him, verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles. Verse 7. Verse 8 points us to what grace does. What grace drives us and empowers us to do. Similarly, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9-10, he says, he says, For I am the least of all the apostles. Sounds like verse 7. I am the least unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So what empowered him? Grace. He's driven by grace. To work hard. To produce fruit. To be faithful unto the Lord. Faithful unto His call. Because of grace. A mark of authenticity is one who trusts firmly in the grace of God. One who is humbled firmly by the grace of God. One who is empowered by the grace of God. We wonder why we are so weak sometimes. We wonder why we, 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 seem, so, we seem so inept. And even sharing the gospel. Why maybe we seem so scared. With, the, with little boldness and little confidence. Could it be? could it be that it's not by grace that we have been walking? Not by grace that we have been humbled? Not by grace that we have been empowered? And this isn't some second blessing kind of thing. This is the blessing of what it means to be a Christian. This is what it's the blessing of what it means to understand the gospel. This is the, the blessing of what it means to be saved. To be saved by grace through faith. Not of yourselves. Not of works that no one shall boast. But it is a gift of God. That's what drives us. That's what drove Paul. That's what drives us as a church. This is what drives us as individual Christians. That his grace is sufficient. That his grace is sufficient. Fourth, he must proclaim The gospel. Fourth, he must proclaim the gospel. We see this in verses, the second part of verse 8 and and, and 9. So, what did the empowering grace of God do in Paul? I already said it. He preached. He preached. And, And this is something that this church knew. They physically saw and heard Paul preach the message. They perceived his insight physically. They knew. His message. Because he preached to them. To preach to the Gentiles. To preach to the Gentiles. To preach Christ. He precisely preached Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. You know what the word preach means? Sometimes we can say a word a bunch and our culture it gets kind of messed up. But it means to, to proclaim. And in that finer tense, it also means to herald. We don't use that word too much. Actually, it would be a good name to start naming some boys again, Harold. But it means to herald, right? Like the like the town crier. Like right? we didn't have text alerts from Bullock County or Facebook posts or anything. They didn't have all that. They would have a guy with the biggest mouth go in the village and yell out something. The king is well. The king is home. Go to bed. Stop making noises, right? I mean, the the, the town crier, the heralder, to proclaim the news. And and that's what it means to preach. And they know that's what Paul did. He heralded the good news of the gospel. He heralded the good news of the gospel. And what is the good news of the gospel? Once again, that the Gentiles were also joint heirs. And underneath that is the unsearchable riches of Christ. He preached Christ. Unsearchable, incalculable, incomprehensible. That word there, that, that word there in the Greek is used in no other place in any other Greek writing. Paul is the only one who used that word precisely. Nobody else uses it. You know what that means? He made up his own word. He's like, something had to be made up here. He made up a word to help us describe the depths of on the riches of Jesus Christ. And haven't we been exploring the depths and the riches of Jesus Christ in chapters one and two? The great spiritual blessings of chapter one? The gospel in, in chapter two, that those who were once spiritually dead can now be made alive because God has divinely intervened? The end of chapter three, gospel reconciliation and regeneration. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Christ was always the center of his message. Our message is that we preach Christ. Is that we preach the unsearchable, incalculable, inexhaustible message of Jesus Christ. His riches. We preach Christ every single week. Weekend, week out. We preach Christ, because Christ is not boring. Christ is not dull. He is unsearchable and he is unexhaustible. It is not the same message that we hear over and over that we become bored of. If you are bored of Christ, then you are bored of the gospel and you are bored of the kingdom. And the kingdom has no use for boredom. But what excites us is the unsearchable riches of Christ, it's what compels men to dig deeper. It's what compels men to go further. It compels men and women to lean in and press in even more and more. We don't know what's behind the next turn, but we know it's rich. And we know it's worthy, and we know it's good. We preach Christ because He is rich. And it's Christ that we preach to the world. and it's Christ that we preach to, to ourself. He is the center. He is the hero of the message. We are not. It's just like in this. Like I'm kind of making it look like Paul's the hero. He's not. Jesus is. Paul's whole life was a pointer to the grace of God. We proclaim it. We herald it. We don't herald ourselves. We don't herald our church. We herald Christ. We proclaim Christ. Our lives reflect Christ and our church is to reflect Christ. He preached Christ. Look at verse 9. And in doing so, in preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, he says here in verse 9, that to bring light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Now listen to this, that it is God's sovereign plan. The God who created all things. right? He he makes that statement there to basically tell you that God is sovereign in the proclamation of the gospel. That God is sovereign in bringing light. God is sovereign in bringing understanding. God is sovereign to bring light. And it's God's plan even for us to be heralds of Christ and to bring light into the darkness. To proclaim Christ and to bring light. But a clear mark of authenticity once again. That his message was precise. That it was on Christ. It was nothing else. It wasn't get your life right. It wasn't do better. It wasn't even just go to church more. That's stupid stuff. He says, I want what matters. Christ. Authentic. To bring light. And it was clear. Point four, I I really love this point too because it draws us back to some of the things that we were talking about in chapter two. Is that he he shows his authenticity because he shows his love for the church. He shows his love for the church. You know that the, the message that... The man is preaching, is authentic because he loves what Christ loved. He sacrifices for what Christ sacrifices for. He suffers for what Christ suffered for. He reveals the mysteries of which Christ gave to him, to the church, the bride of Christ. To the bride of Christ. Look at verse 10. Verses 10 and 11, he says, so that through the church, through the church, here's, here it is, saying the church, us, the people, the fellow citizens, right, members of the household of God, being jointed together, remember the, the living stones that we talked about last week, that the church, that now through us and through them in Ephesus is what to be displayed? To be displayed, to be the manifest Wisdom of God, to display the manifest wisdom of God. To where? To where? So that said, so now being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this is just like us letting the world know about the 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 uh, 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 the wisdom of God the manifold wisdom of God, but he says to the, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. you know what that means? That means the good and bad guys of the spiritual realm, the angels and the demons. That we as a church are the manifold, a display of the manifold wisdom of God to them. The angels, they, they look at the church and they marvel. Like we said, they marvel. They marvel at the display of, of God's wisdom. While demons look at the church and they fear and tremble, some churches. They fear and tremble. Why? Why Why? Why do they fear and tremble at the church, at, at us? Because of the manifold wisdom of God is on display to them. Because when we display the manifold wisdom of God, we are displaying to them their final destruction. And it's coming. And it's coming. So the existence of the church, I love this, it's like rubbing salt on the wound in those in the evil one, and in the demons. Because they know judgment is coming. It was started on the cross, and it will be finished in his second coming. And so said, you can you imagine the original readers in, in Ephesus farmers, bankers, metal workers, carpenters, shopkeepers, servants, masters, moms, dads, children all reading this, and they're going, "What? <laughs> us? Like people hate us. Like we caused the riot in this town. They don't like us. And you're saying this about us. How astonishing. That their church, that our church, displays to the heavenly places, the heavenly authorities, the manifold wisdom of God. Get your mind wrapped around that. You can't. You can't. How astonishing is this? How astonishing is that? That we get to take part of that. That we take part of that. That in in the church, through the church... We display the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly places, and to the rulers and the authorities of the heavenly places. And it was all done. Here we goes. Sovereignty of God, verse 11. All done according to the eternal purposes that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sovereignty. In control. Perceive his insight again. Paul, authentic in his message, not only preaches Christ, he brings light, but he always directs to the church. His message is for the church. His message is for us. Because it's what Christ loved. Because it's what Christ loved. I love that. And In verse twelve, this is my last one. In verse twelve he says that we says that we now we draw near to Christ. We see this authentic life because he draws near. He sees the the purpose in, in in all of this is because now that we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith. Right? Back to to the through our faith in him. Why do we have boldness? Why do we have access? Why do we have confidence? This boldness, this confidence is not is not just some arrogance. It's not just rebellious arrogance. But it's that humility. It's a humility of knowing the message. It's a humility of being saved by grace and is given the, the faith now to, to believe and exercise that faith that we have access to the Father. To know the Father. To to love the Father. To be with the Father. We have freedom and access to the Father. Confidently. Boldly. Without constraint. Without constraint because you are because you are a Gentile. Without constraint because you are a Jew. Doesn't this point us back to the gospel? Doesn't this message of drawing near and having confidence in the Lord and access to the Lord, does point us back to point two? Because if we understand the gospel, we're drawing near to God. If we, if we understand the gospel message, and we are drawing near to God. You see, pride says, pride ignores God. Pride says, in, in, in many ways, Right? subtly or, uh, or intentionally, and I don't need the Lord. Pride also says that in failure, they run from the Lord. But that's not the relationship that we see here. One who understands and knows the gospel boldly, confidently can come to the Lord, can come to the Father. Because we have faith in him. We know who he is. Because we've been saved by grace. Saved by grace. And so we draw near. Authentic message here of what Paul's teaching us here to, to draw near. We see that in his life. He drew near, lived boldly, lived confidently before the Lord. And I think verse 13 really sums everything up, and this is how we're going to close. Verse 13 really sums everything up for us. He says, he says So I ask you, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart of what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So, kind of, kind of the end of a parenthesis statement before he gets into this intercessory prayer, right? He ties it back to, to verse 1, right? Because he's talking about his imprisonment, his imprisonment for, for Christ. And he talks about, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. Don't be discouraged in these things. Don't be discouraged that I am not with you. Because why? It is through him and through his life that the Lord used as an instrument which became their glory. Became what brought the gospel to them. Into the, the same way, we are, we are not to lose heart, but we are to be encouraged. We are to trust in more. To stop being the skeptic attender and to, to, to lean in. And to this, as it was for them, will be for our glory. Will be for our glory. The gospel, which was for our glory, handed down, from generation to generation, something that we now build our own lives on, truth that sets us free. Is it hard to lean into that? Do we need, do we need more authentication for our faith to lean in more? Is it worth reorienting our lives into the gospel? I would say not. We look at the life of Paul, the apostle, given to us as an example of an authentic life that proves his message. That we may be encouraged, not discouraged, all the more, every day, to lean in, press in, and believe more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray now that it continues to have its full effect for our lives and we pray that as we respond together that you would help us to respond truthfully faithfully honestly knowing that Not only is it true and right, but it would be an encouragement to others as well. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the authentic life of the apostle. Thank you for the evidence of the gospel that we may believe more and more. In Christ's name, amen.